Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another chance to come together for the uh, adult class and um, just have an opportunity to um, consider topics that can be challenging to cover in a more sermon, monologue type setting or, um, or uh, in a small group discussion. Um, and uh, we pray that you would help us to, to have um, understanding, Lord. Give us more understanding of how to live in your world as your people, uh, especially as it relates to the political realm. And uh, just give us grace as we um, consider these things together uh, of understanding, but also love for each other um, as we continue to work out these wisdom issues. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Last chance, QR code is up if you want to have the slides on your device as we go through. Um, if you don't get it now, uh, the QR code is on either side of the sound booth if you want to um, head back there and grab it later in, in our time. Uh, you can have the, the slides on your device and if there's something that I go beyond that you want to go back to, there you go. All right, so we are... Um, Continuing our class, Dual Citizens, A Pilgrim Approach to Politics. If you remember from last time, one of my hopes for this class is not as much talking about and, and addressing who you vote for, but who you are as you vote. What attitudes, what priorities, what, what vision of God's kingdom do you bring into the public square? All right, and so we looked at, we're going to look at two principles and then uh, a number of applications uh, next week. But we looked at principle one last week. What was principle one? Don't what? Don't underestimate the importance of politics. Right. So don't underestimate the importance of politics. Don't give in to cynicism and withdrawal that we're often tempted towards. We said where politics is done poorly, the answer is to do it better. Uh, we also talked about how government is not a necessary evil, but a positive good, according to the Bible. All right, so today is principle two, uh, but before we start, I want to go through our exercise to prepare our hearts for our discussion. So would you repeat after me? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So, principle two today, and again, I said this last time, but I'm, I've, the language for these principles I've gotten from a sermon by another pastor. I'm kind of filling them out and explaining them in my own way, but 
the broader principles. So today's, as we talked about, don't underestimate. Now this week, as I kind of previewed last week, uh, the pr second principle is don't overestimate the importance of politics. There is a totalizing temptation uh, that we get in our hearts and in society when engaging in politics, the tendency to believe that everything depends on it. There's also a temptation kind of similar, along similar lines to, to make it into an idol, to, to make politics into an idol, to find our greatest joy and worth and meaning from maybe an association with a political party or you know, through a candidate or a specific issue. So why is it easy to make an idol out of politics? I'll, I'll open it up for you know, one or two thoughts on that. Why, is it, why can it be so easy to kind of take this good thing and make it an ultimate thing? Other than our hearts are idol-making factories, like Calvin says. So that's the general answer, but what's a more specific answer? Yeah, Megan. Yeah, Jonathan. I think there's a tendency to make politics your, your uh, you know, your worldview mm. um, in everything in life. So, like, whether mm. it's at work, or whether it's in school, or family, or whether it's, um, uh, in the, you know, the purchases that we make in the companies that we make decisions, some people will make serving whatever political motive that is uh, their ultimate. And if nobody gets on board, or if other people don't get on board, they're going to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're going to get on the receiving end of that. Yeah. Um, and it sort of sets that new back. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Ray. I think there's a tendency to look to government as a kind of savior. Yeah. Right. If if they're out of balance, you know, then other things can quickly fill them. Yeah. Yeah. No, all good answers. You know, the the intention of politics is to make society better. Um, it's a good thing and it's a noble thing. Um, but it can easy be easy to think that politics can do as much as Jesus' second coming. Um, and Politics, as we've kind of said, it gives purpose, it gives meaning, it gives, for many people, it gives community. It's a place to find community, which is not bad in itself, but in that sense, it can just become all-encompassing. Even in, you know, uh, politics, the way that are done in our society, in our government, the way it's set up, I, I sometimes compare it to sports, it can get competitive, you know? It can be easy to, just like with your sports team, to get, find your source of identity even from you know the victories of your team it can be similar to your party if your party uh, you know wins and then of course politics is all around us as Jonathan was kind of hinting at um, it, it, we, we bump into it in so many areas of life and so the temptation is constantly there which can make it all the more easy to fall to the temptation of idolizing it so I think one of many helpful places to go 
in the Bible is Revelation 13. All right, so we talked about Romans 13 last week. Now we're going to balance that with Revelation 13. I think a, a pilgrim approach to politics holds Romans 13 and Revelation 13 in tension. So you can turn there. Um, if you want to grab a Bible, I don't know if they have them in, in the seats or if you have one on your device. But as you're turning there, let me just kind of frame Revelation 13 a little bit. First of all, just the context of the, the book itself. Revelation, um, as a, a genre of, of Revelation, is mainly apocalyptic, which can be kind of a, you know, a scary word to some, but what it simply means is unveiling. Apocalyptic means it's unveiling literature. It pulls back the curtain on something, and the main thing it unveils is what? Is Christ. It, it, it talks about Christ and, and how he truly is on the throne of this world. Um, and, and Revelation helps us see that there is more going on in this world than meets the eye. Um, but also, Revelation is a letter. It happens to be a letter in apocalyptic form mostly, but it's nonetheless a letter to a struggling people. And so there is a context in which John is writing it to a a people struggling from persecution. There's lots of imagery in Revelation. It's been said that Revelation is the exclamation point at the end of the Bible. Um, There's there's not a ton of new theology introduced in Revelation. There is new theology, but there's not a ton of new theology. What, What is done is the, the theology of the New Testament is repackaged in Revelation through images. Why? To, to help it go deeper into our hearts, to help it stick. If, if, you know, if the, the rest of the New Testament is in some ways the lyrics of the gospel and of the truths of you know, what life is like now that Christ has come, then Revelation would be the music to those lyrics to really help it go deeper in our hearts. So there's lots of symbolism. We'll see that in our passage. Also, the context of Revelation 13 is, is just before in Revelation 12. Um, beginning of Revelation 12, there's this woman that's introduced. And the woman represents Israel, the people of God. And this woman has a child, which um, it's pretty obvious is referring to Jesus. So out of Israel comes Jesus. But then there's this dragon introduced in chapter 12. And, and it's, uh, John makes it very clear that the dragon is Satan. And this dragon tries to devour the child, but the woman and the child are protected. Kind of seems to hint of the time when Herod tried to kill Jesus. Um, uh, but then the dragon is defeated and cast out of heaven. So since he couldn't get the child or the mother, he then turns to go after the offspring of the child, which is what? It's the church. And this is how chapter 12 ends in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And it, then it delineates, it says, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So here we are at the end of chapter 12. This dragon is on the edge of the sea. And then chapter 13 will show us a primary way in which the dragon will make war on the offspring, on the church. He's going, in chapter 13, there's a story of two different beasts. Um, and we're just going to read about the first beast today. And I'll just tell you right now, this beast mainly is a symbol, symbolic of human government. All right? So, can someone please read... 
Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. Can I get a reader? All right, Cliff, thank you. Thank you. What do you think? That's, uh, that's pretty real. Um, so we see the dragon who was in chapter 12. He's going to employ the help of two different beasts in chapter 13. One from the sea, which is this one, and there will be another one from the land, which comes right after this. Um, we're not going to talk about the second one. The second one is kind of referring to uh, human philosophies. It's eventually called the false prophet false teaching that kind of can go with um, unhelpful forms of government. Um, we're, we're not going to have time to get into that part of it. And this is more pertinent to our discussion as the first beast. So one from the sea, and remember this is apocalyptic symbolism, brilliant, beautiful writing, but what does it all mean? All right, what does it all mean? All right, verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. Um, what Old Testament um, story should we be thinking of right away when we, we see this? It's Daniel, right? Daniel, um, at the end, second half of Daniel is apocalyptic literature. And um, you really can't understand Revelation without understanding the second half of the book of Daniel. And um, so there's, there is... Uh, a very obvious allusions to the, the beasts and images that Daniel saw um, hundreds of years before this um, in Revelation. All right, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. The beast is a form of the Antichrist, an Antichrist, not the Antichrist, but is an Antichrist. It's from the sea. To make a long story short, um, the sea here is referring to humanity. So this beast rises out from the sea means it rises out of humanity. Ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns. All right, The crowns is what most all commentators 
because of that, they're like, okay, this is referring to human rule, human government. The, ha- the numbers 7 and 10 kind of give the sense of completeness and fullness, um, just the government and all its power. The horns, obviously, uh, are symbolism for power. So all together, this beast is combined this, uh, as this tremendous force of world government set against the saints. It's actually a combination of the four beasts um, that Daniel saw in Daniel 7. This beast kind of combines the four, and we'll see some of that. So Satan will use the world powers to advance his cause on earth because he knows his time is short. Um, the, see the, the blasphemous names, I think it talks about. Blasphemous names on its head. Many believe this is referring to mottos or slogans that governments may adopt uh, throughout the ages. You know, in John's day, they dealt with Caesar. And what did Caesar call himself? He said he called himself Lord and God, which a Christian could not confess. Think of the French Revolution. One of their mottos was neither God nor master. Um, Verse 2, you see uh, it talks about a leopard and a bear and a lion, aspects of him. Actually, in Daniel 7, uh, there is a specific leopard, a specific bear, and a specific lion um, with other features. But here, this one beast has the features of all of those together. Um, so three of the four, that, that describes three of the four beasts in Daniel 7. John combines them, again, to, to kind of denote all world power hostile to Christ. Um, so the leopard kind of communicates swiftness and cunning. A bear represents power, and a lion's mouth represents cruelty. Um, so altogether, there's force, there's speed, there's savagery. Um, so the idea is that Satan himself, who's at times in the Bible called the prince of the world, stands behind the beast, the dragon stands behind the beast, coming up out of the sea, and gives the beast his power, as this passage says. Verse 3 um, the beast is fatally wounded, yet it's healed. Um, most believe that's a reference to Satan's head being crushed, the promise of Satan's head being crushed, um, but yet still has some time before he's completely um, annihilated. Yet at the same time, there's also several times in Revelation 13, there's ways in which the beast and the dragon are described in a way that tries to make them look like Christ, to communicate Satan wants to be in the position of Christ. He wants the throne of Christ. And so there's this, you know, uh, Christ was wounded and yet healed. And so there's sort of a, a, some of that going on. Verse 4, um, the people worship the dragon and the beast. Uh, the dragon is behind the beast. They're kind of one and the same. Uh, they say, who is like the beast? What does that sound like? There's times in the Bible where it says, who is like our God, right? Um, so again, it shows that the, the, the dragon and the beast are trying to take God's place. And it says at the end, who is able to make war? So it's just kind of predicting there, there can be times where these kind of governments can be very powerful and Christians will not be able to you know, do anything against them. Verses 5 through 7, the phrase in verses 5 through 7, was given, appears four times. In verses 5 through 7. Those are very important words. Those actually no longer refer to the dragon giving the beast power anymore. Those refer to God 
giving both their power. Which is a little hard to swallow, given some of the context, but now we see the sovereignty of God over all of this. You know, the beast is given power by Satan, but both are given their power by God. And it says this will be allowed for 42 months or three and a half years. The idea of three and a half years or 42 months is used several times in Revelation uh, to refer to the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And the idea is that it's short. This is language for believers to be reminded that it's short. Um, Jesus will come again soon. Verse 8, those whose names are written in the book, um, it talks about there, that's a subtle reminder to the believers as they're reading it, hey, your name is written in the book. There is nothing that any earthly power can do to you that can take that away. So it's supposed to be kind of a reminder of the comfort that their names are written in the book and that they are safe no matter what. Uh, verse 9, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That Jesus uses that language a lot, and I, uh, they, they think John is using that language to kind of remind them, hey, Jesus is in control. Uh, remember all the things Jesus has said in light of, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then it says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. This is essentially saying uh, some believers throughout history can expect um, to be persecuted and even put to death because of their faith by human government. Um, it's a paraphrase of Jeremiah 15. Um, and uh, there was struggle in how to understand verse 10, but it, it seems to be best understood um, as an emphatic assertion of the inevitable and inescapable persecution of the church. We will suffer. That is what requires the patient and endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints, as the last phrase shows. Okay, so what's the point of all this? Why do I share this? I think this passage helps us see that while God is in control, God does allow Satan still um, to have uh, some sort of influence on this world. And with Satan's hand, at least Satan having a hand on the wheel, the state will always be tempted, doesn't always manifest that way, but will at least be tempted to totalization. It will seek to take a place that only God should occupy. It has and it will continue to abuse its power. Uh, one person said it will always arrogate itself, to itself a position in the lives of human beings beyond what is right, and it will always demand greater loyalty than ought to be given to it. And this can even happen in a republic or a democracy, whatever you want to call our government. Uh, we are not immune to this, even though it, we, have, you know, we, we try as hard as we can over the centuries um, to not experience this. Um, we're not immune to it. Satan is in the business of taking good things and making them ultimate. So we should all be asking a very obvious question at this point. We should all be scratching our heads and wondering what about the biblical view of government? What about Romans 13? All right, How do we square Revelation 13 and Romans 13? The state is set in place by God. How could it ever um, get to this place? So uh, I thought it was helpful. Dr. Robert Rayburn, one, one pastor, in his sermon on of Revelation 13, he says, There is certainly a more positive view of the state and human government in the New Testament. We Christians are commanded to be obedient citizens to honor the state as an agency of God's rule in the world. 
John, who wrote Revelation, would, would not have disagreed with any of that. So Paul and John are not in disagreement here. The state is a necessary institution. God appointed it for the welfare of mankind. But Paul, who had much to say about the proper role of the state, would have agreed with John that when the state arrogates to itself the prerogatives of God, it has gone too far and Christians cannot countenance or participate in the idolatry. And because they will not participate, they will suffer at the hands of the state and they will and they have again and again throughout history. Uh, one other commentator said, it's God's will that there should be law and order, Revelation, uh, Romans 13. It is the devil's achievement that there should so often be bad law and tyrannical order. All right, so last week, Mike asked a great question. So what do we make of the Re- American Revolution? Was it, was it right of them to, to overthrow the British government? Which is a great question, and I essentially punted last week and said, I, it's a great question, that's for another day, and I... I still stick to that. It's a kind of a, it's, it's above, above my pay grade, but it is a, an interesting question that Christians have disagreed on. Um, but there are plenty of good things to talk about with that, but um, that's not my intention with this class. But I would love to get coffee and talk more about that if you want to. All right, so came up with a fun little illustration. Um, Romans 13 and Revelation 13, are, I, I kind of want to see as guardrails. I see kind of in the middle of those guardrails, those are supposed to be rails on each side. In the middle is sort of this pilgrim approach to politics as I've been um, pushing in Romans 13 and Revelation 13, sort of staying between those. So, you know, we're thinking about one of the ways that we can overestimate the place of politics is by making an idol out of it. So what are some ways um, to discern that something has maybe become an idol in our life? You know, one question is, whom do you praise? What do you give your love to? Do we get more excited about or more identity from our earthly citizenship rather than our heavenly? Um, And Calvin said we owe God four things, adoration, trust, Invocation or prayers um, and thanksgiving, and each of these questions goes with those four things. So, whom do you count on? Who do you trust? You know, based on our thoughts and actions right now, does it seem as if we're more concerned about the next several years in political life than we are with eternity? Again, there's nothing wrong with being concerned about the, the state of our country or anything, but are we more invested and more concerned about that than we are with the kingdom of God? <clears throat> in the state of the kingdom of God. Whom do you call for? Have, have we become more concerned with achieving a specific political outcome than about leading people to Christ? Again, both are important, but we can, um, we can get out of balance. Whom do you thank? You thank is another question to ask ourselves. All right, so... Now that we have these sort of broad guardrails in front of us of Romans 13 and Revelation 13, I want to get a little more specific um, and talk more specifically about two extremes to avoid. So again, my really easy to understand illustration or uh, picture. So these are the rails and these are ditches on the other side of the rails that these rails are keeping us from. Here's two ditches, secular fundamentalism and religious fundamentalism. All right. Uh, I came across... Some of these ideas from another thinker that I thought were 
um, helpful to bring to, to all of us. All right, so one of the extremes to avoid is secular fundamentalism. This is this idea of kind of banishing moral and religious values from the public square. Some think there's a way to build sort of a worldview-neutral public square, like some kind of, think of like a pie crust where it's just the crust um, that we can agree on, that all of society can agree on as a foundation for society, that pie crust. Um, this is, I'm getting this image from a, a, an author named Natasha Crane. And so you can f- put the fillings of the pie crust in private, um, any of your religious values in private, but don't put any of those fillings onto the public pie crust for anyone else to taste. So that does not work. Uh, that's just not realistic. Societies must function from some idea of what good and bad is, but the definition of good and bad depends on a person's worldview. What's right should be, what rights should a person have? What should a, be considered criminal behavior? What should be taught in public education? Even the most basic questions of how to run a society are inherently connected to assumptions about the nature of reality, assumptions which aren't neutral. So it's good, and I personally agree with separating church and state, but I don't believe in separating faith and politics. It's unavoidable to bring our faith into politics. If someone says, don't impose your beliefs on me, that's a belief itself. All right? And think about it. Faith has had great impacts politically throughout history. All major civil rights victories, anti-slavery laws, child labor laws, women's suffrage, civil rights movement, all had overt religious roots. Um, not to mention the rights that we cherish as Americans, the dignity and importance of every person, um, the idea of due process, the idea of liberty and justice for all. Why are those rights self-evident? It's because they're grounded in a Judeo-Christian tradition, and to banish that voice from the public square would be to cut off a, a limb that we are proudly standing on, okay? But then the other extreme avoid is religious fundamentalism, basically imposing a religious theocracy, as if the kingdom of God could be ushered in through the right candidate, for example. Um, Only Jesus is ultimate. Only Jesus is the king of this world that we need over uh, reigning and ruling over this world. Um, And and the, the Psalms talk much about God blessing his king, who it points to Jesus. So, and even think about how the early church thrived when it was a marginalized community. And so it's just this tension. Yes, we should bring our faith into the public square, but it's complicated. You know, there's a lot of disagreement with Christians on how much of our faith to bring into the public square. Again, I, that's, not, that's, that's above my pay grade to, to know how to winsomely and helpfully speak into that. I'd love to get coffee if you want to talk more about that, but I'm going to just leave it at that. Um, kind of in relation, John Stott, uh, a pastor in England for decades, um, he was a disciple of J.I. Packer. He uh, talked about four main models of the relationship between church and state over the history. There's Erastianism. Um, the state controls the church. That's happened. You can give multiple examples of that. There's uh, Theocracy where the church controls the state or a religion controls the state. 
There's one he calls Constantinianism, thinking of Constantine, a compromise in which the state favors the church and the church makes some accommodations with the state in order to preserve its favored status. So there's this complicated relationship. And the fourth is what he calls partnership. Church and state recognize each other and they each have distinct God-given responsibilities and encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfilling these roles. And Stott argues that um, the partnership model seems to accord best with Paul's teaching in Romans 13. And this is, he, he goes through this, it's just a quick paragraph he gives. He's like, I'm going to throw this out there. I'm not going to elaborate on it, but... Uh, in his introduction to his commentary on, on Romans 13, he, he kind of lists these that I thought were just helpful categories. I pause for comments or question. Yes, Murray. Yes. Yep. Yes, Scott. Yeah, no, that is a, an interesting history that I actually just recently learned. I, I'm embarrassed to say I did not realize that the confession was uh, updated um, after the founding of America and, and, and what you'd probably know the history a little better than me on that. But you're saying based on the old confession or the new confession? Well, yeah, I think, I think the difference Yeah, the old one would have been a little bit more towards a... Um, um, Trying to remember, I think they would have been more towards Erastianism, theocracy. Gotcha. So maybe Constantinianism, a little, little bit more. Yeah. It did. Yep. Very interesting history. All right. There's one more thing I wanted to cover before we go. To put it all together um, is the idea of two kingdoms, which is from Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther kind of came up with this framework to help us build. It's a framework to help us build a pilgrim approach to politics, sort of broadly speaking. Um, articulated by Luther, but really it has a lot of roots in Augustine's um, City of God book. Um, it was foundational for Luther and how he thought about the Christian's role in society. Um, and, and what I'm going to talk about is classical two-kingdoms theology. There's a more kind of, you could call it neo-two-kingdoms theology um, that's going around today that is, uh, is different, it's, it's slightly different, but significantly different than what I'm going to be talking about. And I don't have the time to distinguish between the two. All right, so kingdom and the idea of two kingdoms is actually an unhelpful term, sort of, because it makes you think of physical territories like the kingdom of France bordered on the kingdom of Spain. But two kingdoms 
uh, in, this round, in this way is not that simple. It's the idea of two reigns. It's the two reigns of Christ that we experience in our life. Christ reigns over all things, but in two modes. We experience Christ's lordship in two ways. There's the spiritual mode of his lordship over our life, and then there's the temporal mode, or the spiritual dimension, or the temporal dimension, or domain. All right, so let me try to explain that. So there's the spiritual kingdom. Um, this is, uh, or domain, this is the vertical dimension of Christ's. This is our, either individual or as a church, direct um, experience of Christ's lordship. And so, um, and there's the temporal kingdom. So this is vertical. It's, this, this is experienced mainly in our conscience. He is, Jesus' reign is over our conscience. Conscience is the faculty of human nature that provides a conditioned moral response um, in our lives. Um, scripture alone is operative, um, meaning Scripture is the main way Christ uh, kind of directs our lives over our conscience. Um, Christ acts directly. Um, the hidden work of Christ is in the heart. He uses his word. He uses the sacraments. But there is no human authority over our conscience. A pastor or another believer can sometimes act on Christ's behalf in this realm insofar as they communicate God's word. So it's, it's called, they have a declarative role. Um, it's the domain of God's commands. You think of the Ten Commandments or the commands of Christ. Um, it's saving grace. Um, it's believers. Whereas the temporal kingdom is horizontal. It has to do with how we organize our lives as human beings in this world. And yet Jesus' reign is still experienced through that. Um, it's mainly over our conduct with other people. Not that he doesn't care about our contact and the conduct in the other ones, but it's just it's one way to put it. Difference between conscience and conduct. Um, scripture is definitely speaks to it, um, but not exhaustively, so it operates along other forms of human authority. It's the, Christ acts indirectly through visible mediaries and human laws. So think of parents, government, your boss, mentors or pastors. Again, there's ways they can, you can experience Christ's spiritual reign over your life through them, but most often you think of the fifth commandment, um, Christ acts indirectly through them. It's the domain of um, human wisdom. So there's God's commands, but then there's human wisdom. I'm making practical choices. It's more the, ra- the realm of common grace, although I will show that there is elements of saving grace in this, in this realm. Um, it's believers and non-believers. So one way to think of it is uh, Martin Luther said about the conscience, a Christian man is the most free and Lord of all and subject to none. That's referring to the spiritual kingdom. As, if, as far as it is in reference to our relationship with God in the, the spiritual kingdom, um, we are a free and Lord of all. We are saved. Um, it is finished. Yet at the same time, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. That's speaking of more the temporal kingdom, of how we live our lives in the temporal kingdom. So from the standpoint of a spiritual kingdom, a Christian is free and Lord of all. No one can get between our conscience and God. God is alone is Lord of the conscience, and we possess all things in Christ and have no need of anyone else or anything else. But we still live in this world. So we have been set free by Christ to be a dutiful servant of all. So it's because Christian is free and Lord of all in the spiritual kingdom 
that we can be servant of all in the temporal kingdom. Because if we didn't have this radical assurance by faith that we have been set free by Christ, then we would seek to earn God's favor. That was the culture that Luther was speaking into. It's very works-based. So our duty to neighbor would always then become just instrumentalized or legalistic. You know, give to the poor only because we're feeling insecure in our conscience. So, the, so another way to help us get our minds around these two kingdoms is that the church actually has a foot in both kingdoms. Um, it has a foot in the spiritual kingdom by you know, the preached word and experiencing the sacraments, among other things. And we experience Christ's direct um, reign over our conscience through that. But there, our church also has a foot in the temporal kingdom. You know, if maybe in a sermon I say, hey, it would be very wise for you to have a quiet time in the morning, that's not a scriptural command. That w- that's, that's me giving you practical wisdom on how to live out your relationship with Christ. Or join a small group. You know, that's, that's practical wisdom um, that the church employs. Um, there are some churches that require you to be in a community group um, to be a member, and I, I, that, I just don't think that that um, is the most scriptural way to run a church. That's a conversation for another day. All right, so that's the two kingdoms. So um, Brad Littlejohn has been the most helpful um, describer of Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms. And he, in his book on it, which I meant to bring out here, it's a little booklet, he talks about, okay, how does this impact our relationship in families and in government and in, I think he said, the economy? And so his uh, chapter on politics, how does this now impact how we approach politics? Um, He gives five theses of how it um, should impact it. And uh, I'll have to go more into this next week. Uh, But the first thesis is Christ is reigning through worldly rulers and institutions to preserve his good world. Um, So even while we insist the centrality of Christ's saving work in the church and the hearts of believers, we must not abandon the rest of the world to the devil. Jesus is Caesar's Lord and obeying Caesar can be a way of obeying Christ. So Christ is reigning through worldly rulers and institutions to preserve his good world. Second, Christ's temporal reign is indirect and mediated in a way his spiritual reign is not. And we'll have to pick up there next time. Um, So I'll finish with these and give some other sort of practical takeaways based on these two principles we've covered. So we've got a minute or two. Any final comments or questions? Yeah, Isaiah. Yes. Yes. Yes, and it's complicated yet still, though. That is a good point. We, we draw a lot of principles from the rules that are in the Old Testament to organize our lives today. But the, the, the stage in the story was a little different then, where there was more of a requirement to follow the law of the land as children of God in that time uh, than there is today. I, I, I wouldn't be able to describe the difference quickly, but at the same time, yes, there, there are many helpful um, things in 
the Old Testament that speak into how we should organize our lives today. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah, and have really lived out the call, the final call of Revelation 13 to stay faithful. Yep. All right, we're going to close there. Um, again, one more week next week. Um, maybe we'll have more time for questions then. Father, thank you for this chance to cover this material. <clears throat> um, just pray that you'd continue to give us wisdom and understanding as these are complex layer upon layer issues that we long to um, navigate with the, the utmost biblical clarity, um, but also the utmost biblical character. Um, so help us, Lord, and uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.